Hey everyone, just a quick note up the top to tell you that we've just launched our first Kickstarter campaign, which is aimed at making season two of the podcast even better than the first one. Backers can commission a custom podcast, grab an exclusive 80 days t-shirt, or even get a behind the scenes look at how we work. To find out more and to throw a little holiday cheer our way, follow the link in the show notes or simply go to kickstarter.com and search 80 days podcast. Now we'll get you back to your regularly scheduled programming. Merry Christmas. I am willing to wager 20,000 pounds that I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. Do you accept? Don't accept, I accept. The train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Hello everyone and welcome to 80 Days in Exploration Podcast. Today's Christmas special podcast is brought to you by three history and geography nerds in an internet power balloon. This podcast is dedicated to discussing little-known countries, territories, settlements, and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly, I'm broadcasting from Hong Kong, and joining me today are... Joe Byrne in Bern, Switzerland. And Mark Boyle in Surrey in the UK. And in this episode, we'll be talking about Lapland, a large region of Fenno-Scandinavia, north of the Arctic Circle, spanning Finland, Norway, Sweden, and Russia. This podcast will touch on all areas of Lapland, but will focus primarily on the Finnish and Norwegian territories. The area is named for the Sami, or Lap people, who have sparsely inhabited the region for several thousand years. Lapland is also home to a certain Mr. Claus, who will be setting off on his journey soon across the globe. Yay. In Lapland, winter lasts from early October to early May, with temperatures well below freezing throughout the region and up to 60 centimeters or 23 inches of snow during midwinter. However, in summer, the sun doesn't set on Lapland for several weeks at a time. Population in the, in the region has declined quite significantly since 1990, and the area is now home to approximately 180,000 people. Residents are spread across a total area of just over 100,000 square kilometers or 38,000 square miles, and there are as many reindeer here as there are people. Joe, uh, let's talk a little bit about the early history of Lapland. Where to begin? To start? With a myth, maybe. <laughs> okay. So, so the Sami people who live in, in Lapland, or, or as they prefer to call it, Sapmi, have been uh, an oral tradition people up until very recently. So they, they were the last hunter-gatherers in Europe, most likely. They didn't really settle into towns and agricultural settings uh, it, to anywhere near the same level as other Europeans. So, to be honest, we don't really know when they first got here, other than it was a long, long, long time ago. And when, you know, when the Swedes and the Norwegians and the Finns get, get to Scandinavia and keep going north, there's already people there doing their thing. So you've got various creation myths told by the Sami people. Like The, the, the simplest one is that of just a, a white reindeer who created the earth. His veins became the rivers and his his uh, his fur became the forests and his belly became the sea. And that kind of shows how central the reindeer is to giving life to uh, Sami people and all of their all of their traditions seem to involve reindeer. But you also have these more elaborate um, mythological beginnings that all connect to the sun. And you, you see nowadays, um, they sometimes use the phrase children of the sun to refer to themselves poetically. And uh, one of the most famous myths... Which is kind of ironic for people from one of the coldest places on Earth. Sure, but in the summer... strange. In the summer, the sun never sets. In the summer, I guess you have that endless, endless, yeah, endless daytime. So, it's a a mixed bag. It's quite glass half full, that. The the, (laughs) the children of the eternal, unending, (laughs) semi-year darkness doesn't sound quite as cheery, you know? No. That's true. Um, So, the myth of the son of the sun tells about a, a giant... Who, whose father was the sun, who went to a land beyond the sun and the moon and met a giantess and they fell in love and they, they got married and her family didn't approve because he was just normal sized. And so they... <laughs> Sorry, that, that's the voice of, uh, of her dad. But, but darling, he is normal sized. <laughs> they flee back to where the earth currently is. Her brothers pursuing her turn into stone. Does that have something to do with? Sorry, Joe. Does that have something to do with the uh, coat of arms? Actually, this is like a man with a club. Yeah, I think it's in some 
some areas described as a giant. Yeah, like a could giant be. holding a, a club on one shoulder. Well, I, is... I had a look at it, and um, the the red right hand field of the coat of arms of the province of Finnish Lapland. It has this this wild man, and I think in v- different versions, he's different colors. Sometimes he's silver, sometimes mm. he's flesh colored, and he's got like furry pants on. And then in in other crests, there's also uh, ermines, which are kind of like stoats or ferrets or or mink or whatever. And I think that's a reference to the, all the fur to, to the, the yeah. to all the fur from from Northern Finland which as well. Which is a big economic importance at one point. And actually today as well in okay. uh, in north northwestern uh, Finland, but less so in Lapland. Mm. But it doesn't say anything about him being necessarily the giant, but m- might as well be. Sure. That's probably got more to do with the view of, of everyone else of the Laps as being savages. It, it might do, yeah. So oh in myth, this this guy and, and the giant are the ancestors of the Sami. Um, and that's one of the creation myths. But coming to history, which is more our bag, if we're honest, the earliest reference that may refer to the Sami is, is um, in about 98 AD when uh, Tacitus uh, refers to a group called the Feni. Hmm. And he describes them as a wild, nomadic, pastoral people in northern Scandinavia. And this kind of lines up with, with the Greek historian Ptolemy's uh, group called the Finnoi. So he drew this famous map of the world full of loads of inaccuracies mm. and simplifications. But you do get some interesting names that crop up again and again. The Byzantine scholar Procopius described a group called the Ski Finns, if we uh, translate the name. And this matches Sami, their description also matches some Sami practices. In fact, they, they invented skis. They were allegedly. skiing even even that early? Yeah, yeah, well, how do you get across all that snow? Um, oh, wow. You got long distances to travel through, what, what did you say, like 20 centimetres, 60 centimetres of snow. Skis are a good invention. They are. Then in the 700s, Paul the Deacon, when writing his history of the Lombards, who were a Germanic tribe... Uh, As we all know, there's no point telling us about this show. <laughs> like, we haven't all been reading about the Lombards. Get, get real. So he get wrote real. that the uh, the Scritobini, which is, the again, the, the ski fins, uh, are not without snow even in the summertime. And since they do not differ in nature from wild beasts themselves, Jesus. they feed upon only the raw flesh of wild animals, from whose shaggy skins they also fit garments for themselves. By making use of leaps and bounds, they pursue wild beasts very skillfully with a piece of wood bent in the likeness of a bow. That would be a ski. Um, But this is before the Germans got into skiing. And among them, there is an animal not very unlike a stag, from whose hide, while it was rough with hairs, I saw a coat fitted in the manner of a tunic down to the knees. So this is reindeer herding hunter-gatherers in northern Scandinavia in the 700s. Then in 800s, a Norwegian chieftain called Ottar was visiting King Alfred of Great Britain and he tells them all about how basically he shook down the Sami for taxes. Uh, he was rich because on his land lived some, some Sami folk. Uh, ski tax, pay up, ski taxes, es- everybody. Essentially, yeah. So he said the country extended far to the north and is all inhabited except in a few places here and there laps are encamped, hunting in winter and then summer fishing in the sea and they paid him tribute. I think this is the... The first time you get the word lap used to describe the Sami. Uh, so they, they've never used it to describe themselves, but it has been common for everyone else to use. So kind of this this whole this whole podcast is itself a a tiny addition to the massive pile of grievances that the Sami exactly. people have. Exactly, yes, yes. Yay, we, we did it, guys. We did it. We did it. Oh, boy. Uh, do you have any idea, <clears throat> Joe, maybe maybe not, but do you have any idea where the word lap comes from? Like where, There's a lot of where discussion. Where does that actually begin? The two major things are either it means um, like wild or or um, separate or on the edges, something to that effect. Huh. Uh, so like... Outside people. A bit like how, how Wales and Gaul and Wallonia all come from this idea of not being Germanic speaking. Wal means foreign, not Germanic speaking. And so all those places were literally just called foreigner land. <clears throat> so Lapland's got a similar kind of idea associated. It's the place where the the people on the on the frontiers yeah, live. It's like other land. Yeah, exactly. Um, the the wild lands, the bad lands, or it may be associated with um, the cognate word to to leap. You know, in in Scandinavian languages, lap is quite close to those words. So it could be Le- leap land, like uh, skiing, the way they used to jump with the skis when hunting oh right um so one of those two is probably where it comes from but um okay 
who knows it's lost in in a very poorly recorded history fair enough what we do know is that by the 1200s the sami people occupied most of modern day finland uh, and a lot of northern Sweden and Norway and bits of the Kola Peninsula in Russia. But um, over time, as the, the nation states move north, so as the Finns move north, and as the Swedes and the, the Norwegians, who were pretty much the same group at that point, all move north, they pushed the Sami's territory back and back and back um, as they expanded. The closest related language to, Sa- to Sami languages is probably Finnish. Hmm. Uh, so there, there is a, cl- a closer ethnic and linguistic connection between those two groups, but um, it's still pretty different. And then it's thought that in the Middle Ages, they switched from a hunter-gatherer uh, lifestyle to a more pastoral reindeer herding. So they, they used to just follow the reindeer and hunt them. And they realized we can just we can just trap these things and yeah. just breed them in captivity. Yay. Yeah. As, they, as they had less and less space, they needed to control them a bit more. So they still travel long distances from summer to winter, but in a more organised fashion. And they started taming some reindeer, which you used to encourage the other reindeer to follow and, and so on. Snakes. Reindeer mm-hmm. traitors. Traitors. A cuckoo in the nest. <laughs> Those are the ones with the, the red noses, you see. Um, I thought I thought that was an STD thing, but <laughs> all right. Uh, <laughs> so. Um, Kids, if you don't know what an STD is, ask your parents. <laughs> Happy Christmas. Or maybe don't. Um, Santa transport delivery. Exactly. Uh, well, what else could it mean? So all the Nordic nation states shut them down for taxes during this era. In, in 1591, the Swedish census lists 298 coastal Sami living off the North Norwegian coast as having to pay taxes to Swedish, Danish and Russian governments. Oh, Jesus. Because everyone wanted a piece of the action. <laughs> it seems like such a, like, such a dick thing that like there's just like a couple like a handful of people mm-hmm. right in the fringes of things and everyone's really clamoring to shaft them on taxes yeah <laughs> like they were they really that that wealthy no but they had nice reindeer and it was tasty um uh, and fur i think that's that's going to be a continuing theme yeah uh, i think is Looking ahead slightly, that's that that's not something that's confined to the Middle Ages. No, it not. isn't. You, you mean wh- white people are dicks? But, but, that, but, that old, but at least thing? at later points, the states drew borders and only one state got to tax them at a time. So that that's an improvement. Great. Because can you imagine, you're just there herding your reindeer and like a, a Norwegian tax collector rides up and goes, I'm here to collect your annual taxes, but we just paid the Russian guy. He's like, Russian guy? What was he doing here? This isn't Russia. And then a Swede rides up behind him. <laughs> and, and, the, and the Norwegian guy also walked up to you and he stole your skis and skied <laughs> off. These are a great invention. Norwegian tax collectors. Make more of these um, for me. So the structure of society during this period was was built around the Asida, which I'm probably pronouncing wrong, which is basically a group of families who use the same territory to herd on. So, like a village, but mobile, I suppose. So, like mobile communal farming kind of things. Yeah, cool. yeah. Um, and that structure kind of continues to the modern day a little bit in a more regulated fashion. I suppose if you're herding like masses of reindeer around, you can't really sort of confine them to one spot anyway. Oh, no. They need no. to eat something, right? They, they need, we'll, we'll get to yeah. that later. What we're getting up to is now the 1600s, 1700s, when you start seeing serious colonization from Norway and Sweden. Uh, and that comes with Christianization, but I suppose maybe a few notes about the pre-existing religion before it gets wiped away forever. Uh, they loved nature, I assume. They thought nature was pretty yep. cool. Yeah, there uh, we go. So the, uh, shamanism, <laughs> things had spirits, like places had spirits, animals had spirits. Yeah, yeah. And the shamans are called noadi. Interesting thing is that they would sacrifice a particular landmark, so like a, either a wooden post or an interesting-looking rock or tree or something. Um, and these places called Sidis, uh have been really interesting archaeological sites because they deposited metal there. Wait, so sorry, they 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 sacrificed at these spots. Yeah, exactly. So you'd sacrifice a reindeer or leave a metal offering. When so when the Sami started using metal around three, four, five hundred, maybe a little bit later, you start seeing metal offerings that didn't exist before, including British and German coins. Uh, which is kind of cool. 
when you said like sacrificing places, I thought they were like literally they'd pick a rock and they'd be like, this is going to hurt you more than it hurts us. And they like or hurt me more than it hurts you. They smashed up the rock <laughs> and they kind of look around like, do you think uh, the gods bought it, lads? Do you think uh, they'll be placated with uh, this bit of gravel we've made? No, no, uh, no. These are more, anyway, okay, more pl- that was places this, of, of kind of natural wonder were, were yeah, used yeah, as... Yeah sacrificial places and it, I've, I read an interesting article by a guy called Zacherson about how some of this continued up until about a generation ago how people would know which place their grandfather used to make sacrifices and at the very least they might stop and have a think as they pass by which is interesting I'm seeing two words here Joe that are uh, fascinating in combination with each other uh, bear cult do you have anything on that? That that sounds oh, yes, amazing. Um, not bear. as much as I'd like. It seems like bear cults are pretty common in the Arctic region among different, uh, <laughs> but of course, different tribes around the pole. And the the, the Sami were no different. They seem to have had traditions involving bear hunts um, for religious purposes and wearing bear skins for religious purposes. But I couldn't like, really get much more about it. Um, I guess it would probably come from you know as 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 tasty and nutritious and good as as reindeer would be. Um, it would be seen as a symbol of triumph exactly. and perhaps masculinity to have like the the bear is probably the apex predator beyond you know humans. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it's the most dangerous thing up in those parts. So if you felled a bear, you are you know you you got it going mm-hmm. on. So look at all my bear skins. I definitely did not find this bear dead in the woods. Definitely not. <laughs> that did not happen. He's just sleeping. Um, and then the, the the shamans, the Noidi, they would communicate with the with the underworld and with the um, ancestors and with the spirits to ask for you know a good hunt or whatever. Uh, and a lot of this would be done through yoiking, which we might get to later. Uh, this is a traditional kind of singing um, where you try and describe a thing you yoik a person you know you sing a, a yoik about them um and I, I, w- I once got yoiked on a rugby tour it was very painful very painful <laughs> <laughs> would not recommend and yeah. there's also traditional sacred drumming which is used to tell the future and this seems to have also continued up until recent era people having like secret drums hidden in the woods they go out and use for fortune telling and not tell their kids what they were doing um and this all went underground with Christianity, which was um, pushed heavily by the Norwegian kings and the Swedish kings. Heavy on the Gs. It never really caught on until one of their own got involved. So we might come back to that after the music. Music! Let there be music! That's a good, that's a good point to take a music break. Uh, we'll be back just after this. So that was a sample of uh, some traditional Sami folk music. All right, so how did uh, Christianity make its way to Lapland, Joe? Like after a lot of unsuccessful missionaries coming along and saying, accept Jesus, um, it really caught on when... That's what I, that's what I like to do. Mm-hmm. It really caught on in the 1840s when, when Lars Levy Lestadius, who was himself half Sami, he started uh, preaching. He was a Church of Sweden preacher, and he met this, this Sami woman called Mille Klemensdottir, mm. who was really into this temperance, forgiveness, piety version of really fundamentalist Lutheranism. She sounds hot. Um, she sounds she sounds so hot. Uh, I'm, I'm totally sure into horrified it. that you would say that. <laughs> so he begins this Lutheran revival movement, kind of really charismatic. Uh, he preached in Sami dialects and alcoholism was a big problem at the time. Mm. So his his kind of uh, temperance gospel was popular and because he was Sami teaching and Sami speaking to their issues Christianity finally got a proper foothold in at least in Swedish and Norwegian bits of Lapland uh, another another one in the scorecard for Jesus there <laughs> good good one there <laughs> I have a I have a quote here which is totally something I've sourced uh, I, I just pulled this out uh, just reading one evening uh, it's a Frank Jensen famous Author and his his novel that we all know, The Salt Bin, uh, describes the role thusly. Lestadius' teachings have meant a lot to the Sami. No one can deny that. Their beliefs have welded them together and provided them with a secure base to stand on against the rest of the world. Lestadius has made it seem easier for the suppressed, 
almost made injustice seem just. He has told the people not to strike back, but except being oppressed, then they will get to heaven anyway. Oh, it's it's a sad one, actually. That's kind of depressing. Yeah, now, now not everyone... This is setting us up for, uh, you know, again, the, the oppression that's that's coming down the line. <sighs> Just, you know, stand and face it, lads. You know, you, you, you'll be all the better for it in the end. Not, not everyone went for the turn the other cheek thing. In 1852, there were some guys who had been formerly followers of Listadius who thought he wasn't hardcore enough in his Lutheranism, um, including Eichelmann Zombie, and they led a, a rebellion called the Kautokaino Rebellion, which is the biggest uprising of any Sami people ever, which wasn't actually that big. They, they basically killed two guys. They killed um, um, a sheriff, like a lensman, and they killed a merchant who was selling liquor to alcoholic Sami, you know... They thought the state and the liquor companies were the state and the state church and the liquor companies were all in a big conspiracy to destroy Sami culture. So they also whipped the priest and his servants, which seems perfectly reasonable. All right. I mean, it seems a bit um, seems a bit of a bummer that they're they're whipping that priest. Uh, the priest was the bad guy, though. If you say so. And yeah, it was the only major resistance to Norwegianization. All of the guys were either killed or went to prison. And one of the guys who was sent to prison translated the Bible into North Sami while he was in prison. So something good came out of it. And uh, there's a 2008 film all about the Kautokano Rebellion, which you might want to watch if you... If you've got that kind of time in your hands. Yeah. That movement, particularly for uh, Norway, to kind of quash the Sami culture continued into the 20th century. And then things don't really improve uh, for the Sami people going into sort of the the world wars, uh, particularly the Second World War, as we'll see. Um there was a lot so, going on up there. For example... Yeah, busy beavers. Yeah. So, for example, uh, in the early 20th century, uh, for example, Nor- Norwegian authorities demanded uh, that people who wanted to buy property or lease land from the government uh, for agricultural use had to know Norwegian, mm. which, of course, a lot of uh, Sami people didn't. Uh, also, no Sami languages could be taught in public schools or in uh, used in official churches of the state, which was basically kind of like just drove the thing that happened earlier was driven by that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, it was kind of like cultural eradication, mm-hmm. I suppose, or attempted cultural eradication. It's textbook, which not only kind of drove the Sami away from Norwegian and Finnish uh, people, but also kind of drove them into their own groups and against each other mm-hmm. again, competing for sort of smaller and smaller resources and uh, scarcer and scarcer patches of land. I have a quote here, actually. uh, Sorry, a small quote here. Uh, In the annual report from the Bishop of Trondheim, Peter W. Bachman, in order to fight against the darkness and trouble of heathenism, Samis ought to be converted into viable Norwegians. Uh, That was in his annual report to the Norwegian church in 1914. Again, this is why they whipped the priest. Uh... Yeah, no, fair enough at that point. Although yeah. he was commenting okay. on this 50 years after they whipped that priest, so maybe he wouldn't have been such an arsehole. Didn't really, didn't really have any effect. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, so in October 1939, uh, the Soviet Union requests uh, to establish military bases in Finland. Uh, Finland says, no, thanks, we're all right. And uh, the Soviet Union decides, okay, we're gonna, just going to do this by force then, I guess, and decides to attack Finland. Uh, that's the first winter war, of which there will be a few. Uh, the League of Nations... Uh, <laughs> Famously effective a, you know, body. strong, uh, yeah, political force that it was uh, condemns the Soviet Union. But only, the only people to actually offer real help to Finland were uh, the Swedes. Mm-hmm. But a year later, in uh, March 1940, uh, the Moscow peace treaty is signed between uh, Finland and the Soviet Union. When sort of Finland realizes that it's it's not doing so well, it's not you know the the war against the Soviets is not going so well. So uh, Finland in that treaty loses over 10% of its territory and about 13% of its economic capacity and they're not happy yeah. uh, the Finns are, are none too pleased by this development um, they have to evacuate over 400,000 people from lost but, territories but, but but things aren't finished yet right they're, yeah. <laughs> they're not finished yeah. they are definitely not finished um, um, also in the uh, winter war there's just some some guy you gotta mention He's, his name is Simo Haya he was a Finnish sniper um, and he killed about 500 plus people in about 100 days during the winter war uh, he was a murder machine 
he basically just kind of stalked along the border between the Finns and the Russians, picking out Russians left and right. Um, apparently, the reports of his kill counts daily were sent to the rest of the troops to kind of buoy their spirits. And one of the main uh, the main ways the Russians were trying to counteract this guy was by sending out snipers to shoot this sniper, uh, anti-sniper snipers. Um, he eventually got, uh, so one, one thing I read about, about how he used to stay so, um, stay so, uh, silent and hidden was he would fill his mouth with snow so that you couldn't actually see his breath. Um, also eventually, uh, after, you know, a hundred or so days, he did get shot actually in the face. It, it took out a chunk of his cheek, but he lived uh, a long and uh, successful life. So Finland then decides, okay, we need to take care of ourselves a little bit better. And obviously the League of Nations is not going to help us. So they decided to attempt to sign defense, mutual defense pacts with uh, Norway and Sweden. And Moscow says, nah, nah, that's no, you're all right. We're just going to kind of divide and conquer. So then in 1941, what's known as the continuation war breaks out between Finland and the Soviet Union. Finland were sort of nominally on the side of the Axis powers, although it's somewhat of a touchy subject uh, today. Basically, the Finnish uh, government allowed German troops from the German uh, 20th Mountain Army in Norway to be stationed in Lapland to help defend the border between Finland and the Soviet Union. But the most significant uh, war for the Sami people, I believe, Mark, was uh, yet to come, correct? Yeah, so it's really complicated. It's one of these things that you you assume that Finland was a part of the war, like every other country was a part of the war, fighting the Germans, fighting the Japanese, yada, yada. The, the Finns started out fighting the Russians. And then in the third of their three wars that fit inside World War II, they actually switched to fighting the Germans, who had previously been their allies. And that was called the Lapland War, because most of the fighting took place uh, in, in the very high northern uh, latitudes. The reason that Finland was at war with the Soviet Union, in part, was because the Pact of Steel between uh, Stalin and Hitler, that basically, they, they, they Stalin was basically told, here, you can have Finland. And he's like, great! Uh, and, and that basically started five years of, of crap for the Finns. But the Soviets had been fighting for years at this point, and I mean they, they were they were kind of beating the Finns, but not as fast or as efficiently as they would like. And they had kind of a big big schmozzle going with the Germans, so they decided to sue for peace with the Finns and move those fighting men further south, where they, they could be fighting the Germans slightly more uh, productively. Around this time, also the the presidency changes. Crucially, it changes to Carl Gustav Emil Mannerheim, who is basically Mister Finland. He was a actually a Russian general who was trained by the Russians, uh, and he had led uh, the one of the factions during the Civil War. And he was you know big, bald, military guy, not bald as in hairless. <laughs> and he was basically a a big wheel at the cracker factory. He was top dog. The Germans had been hanging out in Lapland in part as a kind of a, you know, to bolster the Finns against the Soviets, but they were also mining, uh, mining up there. They were mining nickel, as far as mm. I know. So a lot of mining's happened in Lapland and it usually hasn't been welcomed by the, the, the natives. Yeah, mi- mining notoriously yeah. pretty crummy about uh, environmental impact mm. and so on. I'm shocked the Nazis weren't more considerate. <laughs> well, uh, we'll get to that, actually. It's, it's okay. a bit weird. Um... So the, the Finns were allied with the Germans, uh, but the Finns had made peace with the Russians. And part of the, the the conditions of peace was you can't have any more Germans around here anymore. You got to turf, turf out the Germans. Ugh. So the, the Germans initially started kind of uh, peacefully withdrawing, but the schedule for withdrawal was completely unreasonable. It was something like, I don't know, a month or something like that. Two weeks right. and 200,000 soldiers or something like, something along those lines. Yeah, which something is just, bizarre. It's like, not achievable in, in any sense. How many soldiers? 200,000 is what I read. Oh, th- tens of thousands. Two, that's more than there are people there. Yeah, mm-hmm. pretty much. <sighs> the, the, the Finns, and I think the Germans as well, had actually tried to evacuate... Uh, civilians from the area because they could kind of see there was a conflict coming. There was so many unreasonable demands. Yeah. They, the did, Finns they were... did this in Norway and Sweden. They evacuated, or in Norway, they evacuated the the north, which when the when the Germans occupied. I mean, the the Finns were trying to shoo the Germans out the door, uh, and the Russians were kind of shouting at the Finns to get them to shoo the Germans out the door, and the Germans were trying to 
take as much nickel and materials as, as they could with them. So I read that the, the Germans... I just have they an image of up- like German soldiers kind of like scooping up nickel from the ground and just trying to trying to waddle out of Finland. It, it's kind of like trying to finish a house party when the police have come. The police are being really firm and you need to do what they say, but you don't want to be impolite to your guests. So you're like giving them like goodie bags and stuff, but like we're done, this Quick. party's over. Get out now. Um, what, what the Germans called it was uh, Operation Birke, that was their their withdrawal, and it was in three stages. And these stages are Birke Anschlagen, which means cut the birch. Yeah. Uh, Birke being German for birch. And that meant to start to evacuate their materials. Stage two was Birke Fallen, fell the birch, yep. which means evacuate the German people. And then number three, Birke the Kleinen, Make which means small. Crush the oh, birch, okay. which is their rear guard uh, action. And crush so it, they did. The, the Germans did retreat, um, but they they fought a really strong rear, rear guard action. And you know, famously, they had a scorched earth policy on their way out. Just to mention that the, the Germans initially seized Finnish shipping uh, as a sort of a, an aggressive thing to do, but it was actually the Finns that were helping them with boats to get out. So. They were actually, like, confiscating the boats that would have been used to evacuate them. So eventually they stopped doing that because they realized that the Finns were actually trying to help them towards their end goal. But it, it all kind of fell apart and the, the Germans and the Finns started having a, a proper shooting war with each other. The main event in this uh, was the destruction of Rovaniemi, which is the main city in, in, in Lapland. Even today, it's like it's the capital of Lapland. If you're flying to Lapland, that's where you fly it to, Rovaniemi mm-hmm. Airport. And we're definitely coming back to its recovery later. Oh, yeah. Um, but Rovaniemi uh, station exploded uh, when I think it was a train filled with, uh, I don't know, it might have been uh, gasoline or chemicals or, or materials. But but the, the thing is, all signs point to it being the Finns, Finnish commandos who did it. But it basically like glassed the town. It, 90% of all buildings in Rovaniemi were destroyed. Uh, German troops suffered heavy casualties because of glass splinters. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, and it was basically just an, an utter mess. It, like th- Things started out being like quite polite and then degenerated into a proper shooting war. Uh, there was also stuff happening in, in, the, in the Baltic uh, and in the Straits there with um, navies and stuff. But uh, just to mention, this, this weird situation of the, the Germans and the Finns being kind of friends, but being kind of forced into war by the Russians is, is best described by old Big Balls Mannerheim himself, uh, who actually... I think he, his voice was recorded in one of the only recordings of Adolf Hitler not at a public engagement. Oh, I've seen that, yeah. And he, he, it was in the back of a limo hmm. or something. And there's a recording somewhere of uh, of Mannerheim and Hitler shooting the shiz. Uh, but anyway, here's this quote from Mannerheim about how all this whole German, uh, German war fell out. Our German brothers in arms ugh, will forever remain in our hearts. This is a letter to Hitler, by the way. Yeah, sure. The Germans in Finland were certainly not the representatives of foreign despotism, but helpers and brothers in arms. But even in such cases, foreigners are in difficult positions requiring such tact. I can assure you that during the past years, nothing whatsoever happened that could have induced us to consider the German troops intruders or oppressors. I believe that the attitude of the German army in northern Finland towards the local population and authorities will enter our history as a unique example of a correct and cordial relationship. I deem it my duty to lead my people out of the war. I cannot and will not turn at, turn the arms which you have so liberally supplied us against Germans. I harbor the hope that you, even if you disapprove of my attitude, will wish an endeavor, like myself and all other Finns, to terminate our former relations without increasing the gravity of the situation. The gravity being the war that inevitably happened. Uh, yeah. And you know, the destruction of their main city, mainly by their own troops. Yeah. Oh boy, it was, it's quite grim. Yeah, so like Finnish Lapland was was ruined. And- yeah, I have a quote here just oh. from um, uh, historian Jessica Johnson, which kind of gives a sort of an overview of, of the destruction that the war caused to Lapland and to the Sami people. Uh, she says, They were indispensable and important guides for soldiers and long-distance patrolmen. They knew how to survive harsh temperatures and extreme cold. In the fight of the Germans and the Finns against the Russians, it was the Germans who suffered more from the cold temperatures than the Finnish Sami. They knew how to survive these temperatures because their ancestors had passed down this knowledge to them from generations going back thousands of years. They knew how to harness and tame the reindeer that were needed to transport supplies, where tanks and trains 
uh, and railroad convoys couldn't go because of deep snow and harsh weather conditions. The war not only destroyed much of Sami, but also destroyed much of their heritage. Uh, the German scorched land tactics burned most of the remnants left by the Sami ancestors hundreds of years ago. And she closes by saying the Sami are survivors. They have survived thousands of years of invasion and intrusion from agriculturalists. They survived arguments over borders and forced assimilations. They survived Christianity and its harsh toll on the Sami way of life. So it's no wonder that they were able to survive even the harsh and devastating effects of World War II. Sound, sounds about right. Yeah. 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 Just a thing to mention, and it's just something that, that my memory's just been jogged by. Um, Scott of the Antarctic and the race to the South Pole and so on. Uh, Raoul Amundsen, the, the Norwegian who actually was the first man to get to, to the South Pole. I remember reading about how the only reason he basically got there is he didn't do what, you know, Captain Scott did, which is like a jigger of rum in the morning invigorates the blood. And, you know, wandering around in a British naval uniform in like minus 50 degrees, which is what the, the kind of mad stuff that the British were doing. But Raoul Edmondson actually uh, went and met with people in the far north, which I assume are probably the, the, the Sami, uh, to basically learn their techniques of the surviving the cold. And he employed these to, to great effect in his race to the South Pole. So... In, in in basic terms, if if you are going north, the Sami are the only game in town for surviving, uh, or south, as it happens. But if you're going to extreme cold in Europe, the Sami are the only ones who have even <laughs> half an idea of how you, you can do this long term. Nobody else, nobody else can do this. They've been doing it literally for thousands of years. Forever. Forever. Yeah. So, Since the sun's son married a giant, you know? Yeah. yeah. All right. I think we'll take a quick break here. Um... We'll take a listen to a uh, yoik, which Joe mentioned earlier. It's a traditional Sami uh, type of music, uh, which you may recognize possibly from a, a recent Disney film. So the Sami people emerged from World War II uh, in pretty bad shape. Uh, they kind of helped out, you know, whichever side they were told to help out and still ended up getting almost all their culture and sort of their traditional homes being completely destroyed. So what did they do next, Mark? Already, they, they, they'd already been under pressure in, in, in Norway. We've kind of already talked about with Norwegianization, but it was kind of similar in the other areas in, in Sweden and Finland and Russia as well, where um, insecure, you know, increasingly fascist and authoritarian governments were trying to exert their influence over the whole of the population. Dissent, not very keen on. And being any way different, that's kind of seen as dissent, uh, which is bad news for the Sami. Uh, we, we talked a little bit about, you know, really, really grim stuff. We, I don't have a huge amount of details, but certainly have seen mention of, of, of eugenics. Um, it's easy to forget that eugenics was a really popular fl- political philosophy in the early 20th century. Oh, yeah. people, just, people were really keen on it. The notion yeah. of sciencing uh, racism became... A justification for being racist. Well, the the idea that that you know, taking some uh, cherry picked pieces of 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 Darwin's theories of evolution mm. and assuming that certain races are better than other races, and then employing that. Well, you know, you need to socially engineer that. We- so. Weirdly, you always pick yourself as the best one. Oh yeah, and someone else as the the one that needs to be civilized. Um, but it's it's not massively different to how, for example, the Inuit retreated in Canada. Uh, mm. the, the Eskimo in, in Alaska, basically marginalized, disenfranchised, anything you can think of to to debase or destroy their culture was done. Bo- boarding schools were... Enforced adoptions. Uh, like, And that's still kind of going on in, in certain cases in you know the US, for example. I, I've seen reports of mm. that with, with native populations. So the, the stuff that always happens to indigenous populations happens, happens here. Um now, they were obviously aware of the issues with regards to this, so they had their first cross-border congress actually before uh, before the end of World War One. even. It was in 1917 in Trondheim in, uh, in Norway. And it, this is February 6th, and this has become now uh, a marked day in the history of the Sami. This is seen as their, you know, quote-unquote, national day. 
Today, there are Sami parliaments in Norway, Sweden, and Finland. I think there's also, mm-hmm. you know, maybe a council or similar in, in Russia, but maybe not a, a parliament per se. Uh, in Finland, uh, it was founded in 1973. And I think Norway is around the same time as well. They're all founded in kind of the 60s, the 70s. Uh, and, they, you know, there's a proper parliament. They're elected. There's there's a, a building, etc. Um to be on the electorate, the criteria are slightly different in the different countries, but generally mm-hmm. it's that you either have to speak a Sami language yourself or you have a grandparent that speaks a Sami language uh, and that you must identify as Sami, which is kind of, I guess, the loosest criteria of the of the three. By by the today's records, there are about 9,000 Sami in Finland uh, that are on, on the electorate. Uh, but more than 60% of them live outside of the Sami homeland. I mean, economically, I mean, none of the three of us live where we grew up. Uh, and it's mm-hmm. not that surprising that the Sami themselves have moved away from the from the north because economically, there's not a lot of options up there. Uh, you, if you were looking for a job, you'd probably go to, to Helsinki or one of the, the cities in the south. The total Sami population uh, I have now as being about 75,000, uh, with the majority living in Norway. If you, if you look at the map, there's like a, a strip of Norway, which kind of covers a lot of the very northern reaches of Scandinavia. So that's that's a big part, I think, of why their, their population is so much bigger. Uh, I, I, honestly, we, it is difficult to get statistics. Like we, we did actually try and get in touch with an NGO who works with Sami, and they they basically told me that there aren't really statistics about total numbers. Yeah. We just we just don't know for sure. Also, the definitions um, are quite loose of who are is a Sami. Yeah. If it's Sami speakers, if it's people of ethnicity, and because we're, we're dealing with a geographic region again that spans a, a number of different nations, like it's it's very difficult to establish yeah. you know yeah. um total population but yeah we're we're doing our best i i do know that they they do converse with other indigenous groups in particular uh for example the the, the inuit in in greenland they they do have i'm, I'm sure they have you know, some official associations but they they certainly they keep track of each other particularly the you know the hunters in in, in greenland and the fishermen in, in greenland and the the reindeer herders uh because they, they they're both massively affected by uh, climate change, by environmental policy, uh, and also uh, in the northern latitudes of of everywhere of of, of Earth, uh, climate change is happening at a much more rapid pace, um, mm. and they're trying to navigate this you know this really complicated uh, uh, path of uh, many many different governments. But also NGOs who have, you know, various split interests. You know, some of them are interested in, in environmental causes. Some of them are anti-oil drilling. Some of them would be anti-mining. And uh, indigenous groups like the Sami have to kind of decide, well, okay, you're not keen on, you know, uh, seal hunting, but you are keen on stopping oil drilling. Uh, you, are, you aren't you are keen on uh, um, uh, reindeer herding. You are keen on stopping mining. You know, it's it's a very awkward kind of back and forth. Um, and just while we're talking about indigenous people sticking together and all that, mm-hmm. I came across an article very recently about the Standing Rock, uh, what's it called, the Dakota Access Pipeline. Yeah, the North Dakota that's Pipeline. At the moment, yeah, that big protest. Um, which is an oil pipeline that's they're trying to build through Sioux Territory and the Sioux. I think like un- under but, a river, basically, or beside yeah. a lake or something like that. And some Sami groups have been instrumental in... in forcing a Norwegian bank to divest themselves of some of their investment in this project in solidarity with, with the Sioux people. So there's these kind of networks of indigenous people around the world that I, I find surprising. You don't really, you don't see it until you're re- researching a particular group. and You go, oh, look, what are the Sami doing there? That mm. was unexpected. Yeah. I, I read an interesting article about um, the Sami representatives at the Paris Climate Conference, mm-hmm. what was that, last year? And the 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 NGO representative who was there basically said she had to wear her traditional Sami Gakti, the um the traditional clothing, the bright red yeah. clothing and the pointy shoes because the Sami look white. They look European. Yeah. They don't look like indigenous people. Um so in order to get people to realise that they have different issues, they actually need to draw attention to their otherness and in, in those kind of settings, which is an interesting um feature of, uh, of of the Sami particularly. I also read this when when they're trying to protest, when they're trying to show their disgust, they actually turn mm. their clothes inside out. That's their, oh. that's how they show that. Uh, there was a protest a few years ago and I saw that. One of the biggest protests by Sami people against anything, against modernization, against um, 
exploitation was the Alta controversy in the 80s, which was a couple of years long. The Norwegian government wanted to build a hydroelectric dam in Alta, which is very near to Kautokeino, where that ah, rebellion was in the 1850s. Right. And one of the guys involved in it is like the grandson of one of the people executed mm. in that rebellion. So there's kind of a continuity here. And they, they hunger strike outside the Norwegian parliament in their traditional uh, Tuvu tents, which look like teepees, uh, for quite a long time. But in the end, the the dam was built and a village was flooded and some important reindeer grazing grounds were destroyed. So A good um, day's work then. It was kind of a, a failure. But we've mentioned reindeer herding a few times. Maybe we should go into a bit more detail before we get on to the Christmassy or... Um, reindeer are pretty Christmassy. Segment. Reindeer pretty are Christmassy. We're getting close. We're getting reindeer close. Reindeer are pretty Christmassy. Less Christmassy. Um, yeah, I was going to say, if you if you have happen to have kids listening to this, uh, maybe just, you know, cover their ears for a bit because, uh, yeah, reindeer hey, are not hey, bred. Hey, hey. Some of the reindeer... Not bred purely for... Uh, they need to know where their meat's coming from. That's true. They're not bred uh, purely for... They're not bred purely for sleds. Santa's, sled. Yeah, Santa's yeah. purposes. They are also um, a traditional dish in Lapland, uh, sautéed mm-hmm. reindeer. Um, yes. Yeah, so... Reindeer are have, a traditional everything in Lapland. Yeah. <laughs> they are. They're used for almost everything. It's it's kind of, you know... You Clothing, certainly can't, food... Uh, yeah, you certainly can't accuse them of not using the entire animal, basically. The reindeer herding is a huge industry obviously it's less so now i think there's only about 10 percent of sami people can still Mm -hmm. find employment in the reindeer herding industry which is you know significantly decreased it's very capital intensive labor intensive and doesn't return very much yes so you mostly do it if where do i sign up out of a sense of tradition and it's really hard you're you're following your herds across the country from a summer herding summer feeding ground to winter feeding ground and back again you have multiple houses to live in while you're at these places it's it's really grueling work yeah so they they generally move around sort of reindeer herders uh pitch themselves in tents uh and follow the herd sort of around uh, designated areas where they will graze throughout the year lapland reindeer actually i thought was interesting is protected by a pdo or protected designation of origin by the eu huh. oh sort of like uh you know like uh, par- uh parmesan Stilton or, or parmesan or camembert or champagne basically you can't market something as lapland reindeer unless it's actually been bred in in lapland and seemingly it's quite popular in finland and huh. across scandinavia M- mark you've surely eaten it have you uh, i'm pretty sure i have yeah, yeah. I, I went to i've been to helsinki a bunch of times uh for this and that and actually just in in the airport itself there's reindeer pelts everywhere uh and they're super super warm just like uh reindeer skins that you can kind of have on your couch and are super hairy and mm. nice and warm yeah there's uh there's is a species of reindeer called the finnish uh forest reindeer which is native to lapland but that is not the uh, reindeer that we would associate with Lapland, which is actually the, the northern reindeer. The Finnish forest reindeer is endangered right now. Oh. And is a much, is like significantly, I believe, larger than the northern, traditional northern reindeer. All right. And they seasonally migrate across the Russo Finnish border. And we did also mention earlier about uh, the the city of Ro- Rovaniemi, mm. which has been rebuilt uh, since the Second World War because it was effectively just entirely destroyed uh, in that battle that we mentioned earlier. And now, the rebuilt uh, version of the city appears to look like reindeer antlers from above. So if you sort of fly over the city, the way that the streets are laid out, I believe, is is sort of shaped to look like a pair of reindeer antlers, which is quite interesting. That's kind of cool. Yeah, A little bit more on that. Um, the rebuilding was largely done by this architect. He was obviously like the only architect in town. So they gave every job to him. So every like official building there is done by this guy called Alvar Alto. Mm-hmm. And yeah, after after World War II, the place was basically flattened. So he had a lot of space to build in. And if you look at the map, it's kind of, it is actually kind of hard to see sometimes the, the reindeer outline if you look at it on google maps but um the, the way to if you look at the original city plan it's pretty clear yeah but like that's highlighting the bits that are antlers mm-hmm. and if you actually just look at it it's not that obvious at all but the, the way to, to do it is that the uh stadium the running track that's in rovaniemi is the reindeer's eye so they, mm-hmm. they built it specifically so that would be the eye reindeer herding is obviously under threat because the reindeer live on the lichen uh, that grows in forests not the and- lichen so that, that hangs off trees and is on the ground. They have to dig in the snow for the lichen. So climate change is threatening that, but also logging in northern Finland is a big problem. And there's there's a UN documentary about that that we'll put a link to in the show notes. Uh, basically, if you cu- if you cut down a whole forest, 
it takes 100 years or so for the lichen to grow back. Where if you just fell the tallest trees, like traditional foresting used to do, then the smaller trees get bigger and the small, smallest trees get slightly bigger and the lichen continues to be there and it doesn't endanger the, the ecosystem. But when you're logging for just sawdust, they'll just cut down a whole forest. And this is um, pretty devastating for for Sami people trying to keep their traditional way of life I going. mean, the Sami's ancient culture is worth preserving and all, but, you know, we need sawdust. <laughs> Lots of sawdust. That's where the real value is. Good lord. I'm going to just insert a quick clip here uh, from a woman called Erica Larson, uh, who did a talk with Nat Geo Live. She went mm-hmm. and lived with the Sami people. Uh, the document is called The Reindeer People. We'll add a sh- uh, link to it in show notes. But uh, just a quick clip from that here about how uh, the, um, the reindeer herding industry is becoming less and less of a viable career for uh, young Sami people. This is Johan. He's a young herder from Sweden. And I spent a couple of weeks with him. And I asked him... What is hurting to you? What are you going to do? What are you going to be? And he said, hurting is everything. Um, I've learned this from my uncles. I've learned it from my aunts. I've learned it from my mother. Um, I am a reindeer herder. Um, But to be a reindeer herder today, it's very, very difficult. I won't be able to just be a reindeer herder. I will have to take another job. Um, Just the cost of of the gas and in the equipment. Um, reindeer, Reindeer herding is an economic way of life. It's regulated by the EU. Um, but what he was telling me is that young reindeer herders, um, they can continue, but they will have to take other work. But of course, we all know that uh, the most famous uh, reindeer in popular culture and is real life. Uh, named Rudolph. And we're going to take a quick break here to listen to uh, Petteri Punakonu. Yeah, we're going to take a quick break here to, to hear a version of um, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer in Finnish. Correct, Joe? Yep. Petteri Punakonu. Oli poroni ollut ei loiste huono, Petteri menenänpään. Haukkuivat toiset illoin, maja kaksi pilkaten, tuosta vain saikin silloin. All right, Joe. So this is traditionally the part of the show where we talk about local uh, celebrities or famous people from this place. Do you want to do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah, the most famous person from this place was actually born in Myra in modern day Turkey. And mm. uh, we mostly know him as St. Nicholas. He was a third century bishop. Uh, and he, he lives in Lapland nowadays, which is a bit of a surprise to everyone. He obviously didn't always live in Lapland. So St. Saint Nicholas was a, a popular bishop uh, he, in He in whored the around for years, whored yeah. around the Mediterranean with pirates, uh, <laughs> drunk pirates. And he became famous for giving all he had to the poor and he, he, he loved children and he gave presents to them. And um, he became basically the patron saint of children through the Middle Ages. He was very popular. His feast day was celebrated every year in most European countries in early Advent. And basically, he would come and leave small gifts and children's shoes or their stockings that they left hanging out in return for maybe some carrots for his horse or some cookies or something. And sometimes coal. If you're a dick, lots of coal. Yes. Watch out, kids. Um, Mind your P's and Q's. Learn from my mistakes. (laughs) Ten years, coal every year. Yeah, you got lots of coal as as a kid, Mark. I'm assuming yeah. he still does, and then and then still then I wake up and he wouldn't even ha- he wouldn't even be gone. He'd still be there, and he'd press my face into it to shame me. <laughs> Look at it! Look at the coal, <laughs> the magic of Christmas. That's uh, Christmas. How he came to live in Lapland is kind of a long and convoluted story. I mean, basically, the way we all know Santa dresses and looks now, it, it kind of came to America through. The Dutch version of Santa Claus, Sinterklaas. So that's where the, the name St. Nicholas becomes Santa Claus. And New York was a Dutch city. Um. So it became, that image became very popular. Also drawing on, on other European traditions of, of gift giving around this time of year and sleighs and bags of gifts. That all goes back a, a long way. Did, uh, did Dutch Santa Claus's uh, racially uh, inflammatory helper also make it to to New York no Black Peter? surprisingly no surprisingly okay. not that's, that's probably um, for the best the Clement Clark Moore's poem uh, Twas the Night Before Christmas or A Visit from St. Nick really solidified the image of jolly bearded St. Nicholas in the public eye and particularly his sled pulled by reindeer 
which became iconic. In the 1860s, Harper's Weekly artist Thomas Nast depicted the familiar Santa living in the North Pole in his comics. Mm. Because snowy scenes are becoming associated with Christmas. Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol kind of gave this whole white Christmas aesthetic to the perfect Christmas. And of course, the North Pole uh, is the obvious place for Santa to come from in order to, to, for it to be that snowy. And polar expeditions were really popular at this time as well. You were talking about Scott earlier and so on. They were, they were the celebrities of the day. But of course, we all know that reindeer can't live at the North Pole because it's in the middle of the ocean. So it was revealed in 1927 by children's radio show, show host Uncle Marcus on Finnish radio <laughs> that, that Santa's actual home was Korvatuntari in the up on the Finnish Nor- Russian border. Uh, and this is where his secret lair is and his workshop and he lives there with his reindeer. And, See, and, and in Finnish, he's called Yulepoku, which means uh, the, Yule, the the Christmas goat. Secret lair makes him sound like an evil genius, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> he sees you when you're sleeping <laughs> yeah. and he knows God. when you're awake. He's pretty close to an evil genius. Old bobble hats got, uh, got eyes everywhere. Yeah. Um, the Finnish, the uh, Finnish tundra tells no tales. Look at the coal. And just one final um, detail of, of the modern picture of Santa and how, how he, he dresses. The Coca-Cola advertising was really important to Santa's constant wearing of red. He used to wear a more varied wardrobe uh, before Coke got involved. But the artist, um, Haddon Sundblom, who, who drew these pictures... He was a, a Finnish, uh, Finnish descent. He'd never be able to tell from his name. So his image of, of, of Santa re- really is appropriate. He's wearing appropriate costume for the area he lives. And the elves dress in essentially traditional Sami Gakti. Uh, with the brightly coloured hats and the pointy shoes. Um, so this whole Finnish, Lapish, uh, Sami aesthetic becomes thoroughly ingrained with how how we see santa i'd also just mention just his his excess weight uh this is a message for all the kids out there uh don't leave candy out for the guy he's got hypertension he's got a bit of bit of diabetes borderline uh so you know carrots and celery or you'll kill santa mm-hmm. anyway so just as a message mark, you, there. you're welcome mark do you know why he moved his uh his his off he moved to his office in rovaniemi so Santa, by decree of the town council of Rovaniemi, was moved there because they really needed him to, you know, to bolster the local economy. And bolster he did. So Rovaniemi is the same city we said was completely destroyed in World War II, remade to look like a reindeer by a maniac architect. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's not that's not what a normal person does, guys, let's be honest. Nowadays, so who better to move in than... Uh... Another maniac. <laughs> a magical maniac. Nowadays, there's about 300,000 visitors a year to Santa's village in Rovaniemi. And I had a look at some of the package deals you can get. It includes husky rides, snowmobile rides, uh, reindeer sleigh rides, igloos, elfy stuff, all kinds of Santa-related crap of devil room. I have a friend who sat on his knee in in summer um, in (laughs) Rovaniemi. Was it sweaty? So he's he's there all year round. All right. Um, Um, And you can watch, there's, there's a live camera feed uh, sometimes of of, uh, of people <laughs> visiting Santa, which you can watch on a on a website. It's cool. uh, so I had a look at the pricing. So if you want to go uh, and visit Santa and so on, it is a little bit pricey. It a is, little bit. <laughs> it's about fourteen hundred US dollars for a four day package holiday to Rovaniemi to meet Santa per person. Uh, yeah, no, that's for an adult. For kids, it's slightly cheaper, but you know, uh, parental supervision, etc. Um, mm. I did okay. T- two things. So I, I was in uh, uh, Limerick uh, in Ireland recently and I was chatting to this taxi driver and I was telling him about how I was profiling Lapland. And he told me, uh, oh yeah, I went to Lapland a couple of years ago with the kids to, to visit Santi and all that. And uh, it was a bit of Celtic tiger madness is what he phrased it. So pre-recession. About six, six grand to go. And uh, he, he said he, he was particularly, uh, like, he, he liked the experience and Santa was cool and stuff. But one of the elves had a, and I quote, a poxy cockney accent, which he didn't <laughs> like very much. Um, another another thing to mention is Rovaniemi Airport. So it's, you know, this tiny little airstrip in the, the middle of the, the Finnish uh, Arctic. Basically, it's on, on the Arctic Circle. Um, Built by the Luftwaffe. <laughs> oh, yay. Clap, clap. Um... So from there, you can fly from uh, Paris, uh, from Tel Aviv, from Amsterdam, London, 
There's two separate routes to Helsinki, which you'd imagine, they're, they're actually all year. Some of these routes are just seasonal. There's two different airlines going to Zurich. And trivia time, guys. Can you name me the country, the island uh, country that has three separate individual routes to Rovaniemi? Uh, is it in Europe? Ireland. It is Ireland. Yes. Uh, you can fly from Cork. You can fly from Belfast. You can fly from Dublin. It is the only country where you can fly to more than one airport. And finally, just to mention the uh, North Pole Lapland issue. In North America, they still strongly believe, incorrectly, of course, that Santa lives at the North Pole. That's absurd. To evidence this, I I discussed this with my uh, Canadian fiancé. Uh, and according to the dear, dear darling Megan McLean, and I quote, This is bullshit. Santa lives at the North Pole. This is made up hooey. What the fuck is Lapland? Uh, so... <laughs> For, for the North Americans out there, your your opinion has been registered. And the, the, the Swedes and Norwegians gave out to their, their royal families for visiting Rovaniemi because uh, they also had mis, misguided beliefs that the Santa lives somewhere within their territories. Um, so it's quite a politically contentious issue that Santa chose uh, northern Finland as his permanent home. Santa does what he also, wants. But it's just a good place to set out around the world. Seemingly very lucrative for uh, for Lapland as well. So, you know. There's a post office right on the Arctic Circle in Rovaniemi where you can send letters home. And that's where Santa's mail gets processed too. When you send a letter to Santa, it goes to uh, Rovaniemi post office. Very nice. Quite nice. Do you have anything else, gentlemen? Uh, just to say that Rovaniemi is also the home of Lordi. Oh, wow. The... Uh, kind of monster rock band who won the Eurovision for Finland uh, a number of years ago. And I can't think of a greater contrast with Santa Claus than Lordy. Bonkers. So um, that place got it going on. If you're listening from the US, and I know a lot of you do, and you don't know what the Eurovision Song Contest is or what Lordy is, then... You're missing out. Don't bother looking up. It's garbage. It's garbage. Great garbage. All right. I'm feeling all Christmassy now, guys. Yay. I think that brings us to the end. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, cultural assimilation. Oh, entire city is oh, being oh, flattened. Oh, Santa. And, uh, eugenics. Yeah. And Santa. And okay. reindeer being Reindeer. Yeah. Reindeer being uh, eaten. Nazis. And, uh, skinned alive. <laughs> Not Nazis. skinned alive. Jesus Christ. <laughs> skinned dead. Skinned Skin dead. dead. Sure. sure. But Christmas. But Christmas. Anyway. If this hasn't gotten you in a festive mood, then you guys are going to Ireland for Christmas. I, I'm I'm off I'm off to a I'm off to a Christmas market now in Burn before I before I head back to Ireland. So I'll pick up a few little um, gingerbread things and it's it's gonna be cool. It does Christmas well. Very nice, Luke. What are you up to? Uh, I will be doing my Christmas shopping in Hong Kong, where it's you know around fifteen to eighteen degrees uh, in December, which <laughs> certainly isn't conducive to feeling uh, festive at all. Uh, but yeah, I'll be heading back to Ireland for uh, catch up with the family for Christmas. So I'm very much looking forward to that. What about you, Mark? I'm actually going to be in, uh, I'm going to Germany for the Christmas market soon, going to Berlin and then going to uh, France for Christmas, where I'm sure I'll eat like a tiny, you know, wizened partridge or something on Christmas Day. I don't know what they've got going on on Christmas. Ho, uh, ho, ho. Yeah, ho, ho, ho. A half a quail uh, or something. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, no, it'll be good. I'm looking forward to lots it. Lots of wine, lots of wine. That'll help. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, um, happy Christmas to all our listeners. Yeah. Happy Christmas, turkeys. Hope you're looking forward to season two. Yeah, thanks for listening. Oh, yeah. Uh, we, we may We are have, still recording stuff. We are still recording stuff. We're still here. Uh, we're still, you know, uh, researching for season two. As we mentioned at the top of the show, uh, we are conducting uh, Kickstarter right now where we're looking for a small bit of funding to help out with season two and make the show as good as it can possibly be. And also just to uh, sort of recoup some of the costs that we incurred uh, bringing season one to you. So if you are interested, if you enjoy the show, if you're a fan, uh, we know plenty of you are. We've had lots of positive reviews. Uh, and thank everybody, thanks everybody for that. Thank you, everybody. Thank you very much. It's the greatest Christmas present we could have asked for. If you would like to see a uh, season two and uh, check out our rewards on Kickstarter. We would very much appreciate it if you could kick, you know, uh, whatever you can spare towards the, the podcast uh, in this festive season. Christmas Kickstarter. <laughs> We're really enjoying doing this either way, but the more resources we have, the better we can do it. Yeah, Joe, so, uh, we don't even need your charity. We really need your charity. Please give us all your charity. <laughs> season of goodwill. <laughs> That's the spirit of Christmas. Right. 
<laughs> Ask, okay. asking for things. <laughs> uh, should we sing a carol or something? I think that usually, uh, yeah. God rest ye merry gentlemen. And no, no, okay. you're all on your own. Yeah, Joe. we're good. <laughs> you can find out more about the podcast uh, by searching "80 Days Podcast" on Twitter or Facebook. Uh, you can also find our website at www.80dayspodcast.com. You can also contact us if you have any feedback or suggestions for season two on 80dayspodcast at gmail.com. And of course, you can find us on Kickstarter if you search 80 Days Podcast. Joe, where can people find you on the internet? They can check out my blog, timetoburn.com. And Mark? I'm on Twitter at MarkBoyle86. And uh, you can check out my blog, uh, The Toner of Leak. Just Google The Toner of Leak WordPress and it'll come up. And you can find me at my website, uh, LukeJKelly.com or on Twitter at the Luke J. Kelly. Thanks everybody for listening and have a very Merry Christmas. Happy Christmas. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year.